0: You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders in the NHS. I'm Ellie Fox and I help connect digital leaders in the NHS with interim talent and today I am your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organisation. You could just introduce yourself for the panel please.
1: Hi Ellie. Yes, uh, my name Andy Raines. I'm the Chief Information Officer at Royal Papworth Hospital. and I'm also the uh, executive lead for
2: the Cambridge and Peterborough ICS.
0: Perfect, thank you,
2: Steve. Good afternoon, Ellie. My name is Stephen Bromhall. I'm the Chief Information Officer at East of England Ambulance Service NHS
3: Trust.
0: Thank you, Philippa.
3: Hi Ellie, I'm Philippa Graves. I'm the Chief Digital Officer at Elft. Um, um previously to that I was at Bedfordshire and in, in Acute, and I'm at Elft to find out what happens outside the walls of the Acute Trust from a digital point of view. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And then over to you, please, Ross.
4: Yeah, thanks, Ellie. So my name's Ross Bullerton. Uh, this is the very last thing I'm going to do in my current job. So uh, I'm finishing today as the Chief Digital and Information Officer for Buckinghamshire Integrated Care Partnership. There's too many syllables in that title, Um, but that's a post sitting across local authority, primary care and secondary care. Uh, From tomorrow, um, I move to become the digital lead for the ICS across Bucks, but also Oxfordshire and Berkshire West. So really looking forward to a conversation see what you can learn from today. Perfect, thank you.
0: Um, so if we start with the questions, I'm just going to go back around to how we've done the introductions. Um, so over to you, Andy. Your question was, how important is your cyber posture and how have you seen this change in the last 12 months? So if you could just give us a bit of context as to why you want to discuss that, and then we'll go round to the panel, see what their answers are.
1: Well, thanks, Ellie. Uh, yeah, I think um, it, it's something that's uh, increasing up every agenda and uh, board level agenda in uh, many uh, organisations, both in uh, health and care, as well as across every industry, um, I I, I think. In fact, um, I was interestingly uh, reading an article the other day to say, um, on this time last year, cyber incidents have been recorded as up by 120 percent. So it's significant and I I know it's something that we um, frequently discuss. But I, I, I think you know cyber posture is something from um, from only a few years ago. Remembering WannaCry um, when I was working in a uh, major acute uh, trust in London um, to um, uh, events such as the Log4J. Issue that uh, has, arose, has arisen relatively recently, and the responses uh, organizations are taking to things like that, and what they're doing to improve their cyber posture. And um, I, I think in, increasingly there's growing interest um, in what organizations are doing, what tactics they're deploying, what software, what surveillance, what endpoint security they're using. And of course, the, the real a, a really big impact of course, is our people and um, the 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 knowledge they have around uh, do's and don'ts uh, and good practices and and how that can um, help really uh, harness a, a good cyber uh, security posture so um I think it's a a, a real interesting topic and uh, of course um, uh, as as we find out more and discover more about it. Um, I find myself becoming more and more intrigued by um, the uh, tactics that are used, and of course, how we defend ourselves uh, against those attacks. So um, uh, not only that, but um, also things like vulnerabilities and protecting um, uh, what vulnerabilities organisations have through a good patching regime, for example. So um, it's something very much that interests me, and uh, I've enjoyed very much uh, uh, spending the last year or two um, seeing an increase in interest in our organisation in 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 our cyber posture and uh, certainly discussions at at a a board level
0: perfect thank you Uh, Ross you were nodding your head quite a bit there so I'm going to go straight over to you
4: well you've thrown me Ellie I thought you were going to go in the same order as last time Um, so I think it's a great question because it's critical right Um, Uh, The NHS stores my personal data and the data about my family, and a lot of that can be very sensitive data. Um, We also are increasingly reliant on technology to operate day-to-day health and care. Um, Therefore, we need to make sure we've got the right controls in place to protect that ability to operate and to protect that really sensitive data. Um, What's changed? Um, I think there's a heightened... Awareness of the risks that have developed through the, the kind of horrific events in Eastern Europe over the last few weeks, um, there's a better understanding at board level as to why this matters. But it's still a complex topic that I don't think boards really understand. Um, some probably better than others, but I do feel that there's an area where the, the the boards don't have enough time to engage in it because it's an area that needs time and it's fairly complex. So. What can we all do? Well, I think we need to make sure we continue working on making it simple and, and, and explaining it in real kind of strategic risk terms. We need to invest in our people. Um, we need to change the culture of the organisations that we work in, that this is something that's uh, doing the basics brilliantly. It's part of our just core role is to protect our organisations and to keep things working really, really well. Uh, And finally, it's about helping design it in from the beginning. And, you know, we've probably all spent the last month dealing with money that's come out the centre with ridiculous notice periods to spend on technology, and it's got to be spent by today. Um, Does that lead to systems that are secure by design? Possibly not always. So how do we make sure that as we're running really hard on doing some of these things that we're protecting that long term risk? Uh, envelope is, I think, an area we probably all need to reflect on and think a bit more about. So, board understanding, the real criticality is key. Thinking about how we equip our staff more and more for what the skills are they need to, to support it, and how do we manage things like the short-term tech changes that we all have to face from time to time to keep our keep our risk level high.
0: Thank you, Philippa.
3: What are your thoughts? I agree with all of that. It is really important, but I think the biggest vulnerability it's been proven is our staff and us. It's our people and it's our behaviour. We did a phishing exercise with NHSD, loads of people clicked on it. Then there was a lot of anger that we'd done one and that they'd clicked on it with loads of excuses. And then we ran a whole kind of raft of educational updates, put it on the intranet, sent it out, now put it on the mandatory training register, given the Ukrainian situation. I mean, it's a real shame that some of these national disasters are the way that you can get movement in something that is fundamentally really important. You should not have to fight to get funding for firewalls, to get software to monitor web filtering, etc. You should not have to fight, should be mandatory, but you do. And after WannaCry, they threw money at people. Was it possible for everybody to get to the right level from where they started when it had been under in for years? Probably not. And the understanding as in a SISO, as in all of that training, it's a big skill set. It takes years to find. And those people are like gold dust and we don't always pay the right rates to get the right people. So it's the whole thing. And, yeah, the board absolutely own this. So the positive thing is if you're not on the board, you don't own it. They do. But how do we help them understand what they need to do to make sure that their organisation, the data of the patients they serve, is looked after and that we invest in it properly? And there's a programme of updates and upgrades and more and more things after Log4j. I mean, that's been an exercise of kind of show and tell and finding things out as we go along. What it has done positively is made all of us work really closely together because we can help each other protect patient data, which is why we all come to work. But I think it's I think it's really important, but I also think it's quite sad that we have had to fight this hard for something that we all own. This is a board level risk, it's top of our risk register. So we all own this, so it's really important that I guess we get the education there. So people are comfortable articulating what we're doing, that they support us, but I also think it's their job to challenge us too. So, you know, I I feel quite open about it. I think it's a really good question. And like you say, 120% increase in cyber vulnerabilities. For us, where I sit in Elft, Hackney was hacked. So a local borough council was hacked and badly and they're still not back. The impact is so massive and it's a million pounds a day lost in income if you go under without the patient harm. So I think it matters. It's my answer. Thank you.
0: Mm -hmm. Perfect. Thank you, Philippa. And then over to you, Steve.
2: Yeah, uh, Andy, I think it's a, a really uh, insightful question. I think, Ross, uh, sort of the, we can all reflect on where we were through uh, WannaCry and where we've become uh, very sensitive to that. Uh, I look at my board papers. What, our top risk on our bath is cybersecurity. What do I, what are our execs most uh, ask me about is where are we on your, where are we in our cyber posture? What risks do we know what we've got? I think we as a trust were fortunate that we invested in some tooling to, with board support to look at simulation. So we actually simulate attacks to our staff. So we actually uh, ho- make those hostile hits on our own staff to see what they do. When, and uh, clearly what you said, Philippa, um, it, went, uh, it went in an opposite direction In your case, when you did this, um, we did this with support. And it was really interesting to see who actually fell into the trap. And It was more surprising than uh, than i would anticipated, but what it has allowed us to do is to continue to have those staff messages, but it also allows me to get the investment. So I've got investment in some very funky tools that I would have never got money for before. Uh, I now automatically patch Almost instantaneously, I never had the tooling for that before. I can now do that. I can spot intruders and also work out where they're trying to come into our environment and work with our, our colleagues to actually trace them back and give information back to other agencies to, to help. In other cases, just they might be bounced off our environment, but we do go. We then go follow them. So that's really what we're trying to do. As you say, the patient information is critical. We can't let anybody in. Once they're in, we don't know what else they can exploit. So every day it's about what we're keeping out, rather than uh, and worrying where the next attack's coming from.
0: Andy, do you have anything that you want to say after that, or do you want to move on to the next question?
1: I, uh, it's great, and it's really helpful to have um, Insight colleagues uh, on, on this panel. Thank you ever so much for that.
0: Perfect, thank you. Has anyone got anything else to add before we move on?
4: No. Yeah. I was just going to reflect on two things quickly Ellie um it's Ross here there was um where where we would want to cry uh I was sat in the pub and it was on a Friday afternoon and it was the Friday before I started in the NHS as a CIO having not worked in the NHS before and I was sitting thinking what the heck have I just done this <laughs> This feels like a crazy world to be joining, given it's all over the news. Um, and I was very fortunate that the trust I joined wasn't materially affected by it, but lots of others were. And I think it was a great reminder because a lot of people that I spoke to said, well, why would anyone target the health service for a cyber attack? We, we're the good people. We're not ones to target. And actually, A, you might not be targeted. It might just be a, a random attack that we happen to get, get hit by. But B, as we've said, there's lots and lots of valuable data at Health, whether it's about High-profile people, whether it's about uh, the amount of money we spend and the kind of opportunities to misdirect that, uh, the NHS spends billions of pounds every week, so there's a huge opportunity, and I think it, it's great to see that reinforced interest in it. And I completely agree with the other point around funding, because you know, in the last couple of weeks, I've secured substantial amounts of funding on the back of better understanding and articulation of the genuine risks of cyber and where an organisation is and some of the things that need to be done. And I think a key lesson for organisations is don't be scared of telling the board what the risks are and what it's going to take to mitigate them. If the board doesn't know about it, the board can't act on it. Um, So I think that's one of the things I'm really pleased that we've been able to do over the last few weeks is raise the visibility of these things, use that context and secure the funding, which helps do some of what Stephen's doing, automating things, getting it more routinely done and part of business as usual. So, yeah, really useful discussion. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Ross. I'm going to go over to you, Stephen, then go over to
2: Philip. Yeah, I was just going to reflect, Andy, about WannaCry. Um, I was on the other side of the equation. I was provider to the NHS uh, and I had 125 NHS trusts that were taking services from from, from the organisation I was working for and my phone exploded from about 1.15 with sites going down uh, and how we were going to mobilize to bring sites back up over the coming days and weeks and really it was uh it was a really eye opener being uh, a head of digital for one of the largest radiology organizations just to see how vulnerable organizations had become and had not followed what I consider to be basic hygiene so not even doing their Windows 7 patches you know, in, in those days. And it was, it was clear that once the, once the mail had come in and the hit on the click had gone out, it was really hard. And we ended up doing a lot of work jointly with many organizations to bring it back. And I think it, it kind of gave me that reflection point. We can't get back to that point again. I think really that's a, a key reflection from, from today from this panel.
3: Thank you. Philippa? wanted to answer the question about where I was when it happened. I was walking the wards doing my, um, I was the exec on call, I was walking the wards and I got a text to my phone from a colleague in an, a surrounding trust next to us who went, this has just come up on our screens, do something. And I think from there, We did something. We stood up an incident room. We got everybody involved. We did everything we could. But the absolute, like, unbelievable feeling of seeing that, knowing it was coming, was, I just couldn't describe it. We were lucky. I mean, I left somewhere that was really... (laughs) high end and maybe not so much now but it's more about making it the same we need the ics to be leveled up so that's what i'm doing but we had screens all the way up in the operations room and i could show everyone who was going down so we watched spain we watched every country get hit and it wasn't about the nhs at all it was global and it was every industry and that kind of software that you've talked about the visibility being able to show your chief exec that going on outside our door we lost all the acute trusts around us we lost Barts we lost an awful lot and Luton was the only trust standing with an ambulance ramp because we lost the lister so in our region we took all the patients and then I managed that as well as the cyber incident so so I think I really concur with all of my my fellow CIOs view that it is devastating it matters and funding it and getting the board to understand what we are risking if we don't do that is so important but I'm very pleased to say nothing happened to us but that was because of action and somebody who was hit sharing because I would like to say that at that point and I know there was a white paper done and it was fully investigated but we weren't well supported nationally with information only people who were hit and actually, that was no good. We needed to save the people who weren't to look after the patients. So I think we all learned a lot from it. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, Fab,
0: we'll go over to you then, Stephen, on your question, um, which is about shared care records. So shared care records in some systems have been delayed. How is it impacting clinical delivery of care? Can you give us a bit of context to that,
2: please? Yeah, I, I look in some systems around the country who are we're moving to their next stage of shared care records i look at the one london I look at what manchester have done um the, they're exploiting what, what that really means in terms of a one patient view in some systems the struggle to keep up or right, even get the basics of shared care records is starting to impact how we uh we all deliver care we go across multiple boundaries all of us or sit either in an ICS or we bound, we go across multiple ICS's. For me, it's how are we going to keep up with the organisations that haven't got their shared care record in place yet? How, how are our clinicians really going to deliver? I look at it from an ambulance service perspective. We connect into some of our system partners that have the record and others that haven't, and it's an evolution and a journey we're all on together. For us, it's what coping mechanisms we're bringing in to say how can we access clinical records when the shared care record isn't available uh, to be exploited in all the various care settings? Uh, I'd be interested to take the panel's view on experiences of having to overcome that challenge and uh, what advice you could give me.
0: Thank you, Stephen. Philippa, what are your
3: thoughts? interesting actually because the word shared health and care record is not a descriptor it's just a term so you've got some people where it's a a portal to view the data underneath that you're allowed to see some of them are repositories and they have resilience and they have intelligence over the top and they're also used for predicting people who are going to trigger there's so many different types so i think the first thing is a lot of people have been at this a lot longer than some of the others because they foresaw that the only way to do transformational healthcare was to join up the data and the record and then to do predictions and then to start in a multidisciplinary way to going in to make the health better for people and i think it depends on the journey there was no standardization there wasn't even a edict about what shared health and care record meant So when I look at the, if you think about an acute trust, so just think in the walls, the departments couldn't work because they couldn't see the rest of site. I I couldn't see A&E and I was EAU and I want to know what's happened with that patient. We then integrated that data together and we started to present it as a front end. Then we did some clever things because we realized as a health community, which was a hospital, we couldn't work together without the data. It drove the patient care. And that's the same outside with the hospital without walls, virtual wards, all of that good stuff. And now your your concern, and you're quite right, is we can really transform who we go and see, what the ambulances need to do, what the community teams are providing, if we have accurate, timely data in the right place at the right time, on a device that's accessing it. But we need the multidisciplinary approach, and I'm sure it is impacting quality of care in many places if it doesn't work. But I guess my plea is some people have done quick and dirty. Just having a portal to see isn't going to give you the resilience, isn't going to do the predictive analytics because it's just a view. Some of those shared records are actually the back end. They're coming out of the old data warehouses from organizations. They're a day out of date. They don't have the right fields collected because the front's not tied to the back. I think it's something and Ross is taking that job. So go you. It needs to have a descriptor and we need to all aim for what is needed by so such as the ambulance service, but the other care providers. What do they need to transform care? Where, when, how and timely. And then we need to get that out there as quickly as we can for the greater good of everyone. We need to work together to do that. It's not just somebody sat in an ivory tower now in the ics's job it's all of our jobs we're there to support that vision and the person in the ics is there because they're freed up to have the time to oversee that it's being done in a structured way and so much the better if they're a digital expert like ross and not just a program manager who doesn't really understand the complexity so i think you're completely right it is impacting Um, some of the delays are justified perhaps we're trying to do something more clever and resilient but sometimes they're not because we've been late on getting on this bandwagon but it is a complex thing to do but it should be done because it's a priority so that that's my view thank you thank you Philippa. andy
1: uh, that's really really helpful and uh, a, another great question Stephen. i really liked um philippa's um, response as well and i i, I think you know for for perhaps many who've um, been uh, in, in, on this road for many years, it feels like something that we've been trying at for quite, quite a few years, and uh, in one form or another, I, I would add as well. And uh, recently, I was pleased we we've actually connected to uh, Stephen's um, EPCR, which has been which has been great, being one of the organisations to have done that. And, and I think yeah, there's there's why, why, why are we doing that? Well, I, I mean, don't we owe it to our patients and citizens, right? Um, so I, I can imagine the scenario of going into one organisation, having to give your details once, and then going to another, having to give them again, and um, that that kind of lack of joined, um, joined up thinking and and joined up data. And when other industries do this kind of Matter of course, and I know um, lots of um, uh, comparisons are drawn to other industries where where this works, where you look at data through whether it's an insurance company or other, and you can see lots of data behind that and do a comparison website, for example, and 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 draw many m- much of that data. But but one one thing I'm really excited about is our journey in Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, and uh, we've started that journey. We did a lot of extensive markets. Uh, engagement, and um, we, we, we're now at a point where we're beginning to see that um, that rollout of uh, a very exciting um, shared care record um, uh, uh, across Cambridge and Peterborough, and what we're calling, of course, My Care Record. We're going with that branding to try and build that consistency that the public understands what it is. And of course, taking out the important messages to our community, um, our citizens, the importance of this and why we were doing it for the purposes of, um, you know, direct care in the first instance, but also what we do with people's data. I think um, Ross commented on that earlier. It's really important, isn't it, building public trust in uh, in what we do with people's data. So that's really important to me. And I, I, I think it's one of those things as well as Philippa touched on, which is, you know, we've all got many um, probably many transformation projects uh in portfolio that we engage with um but but for me this is a really top priority and uh i think you know to avoid the delay of, of of doing that there are many things around us and um sometimes we perhaps describe them as those red balloons that go by oh let's do that or let's do that but but this is one we must do and uh uh, we 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 must get right um, for 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 our patients and citizens. So I'm really excited by that journey and what it can do. We've got a, a, a full program that runs uh, runs ahead, and uh, we'll be looking to connect our communities in a phased approach. And as we do that, we can start to also think about those regions around us and joining um, joining to those as well. But I, I do think when you have something as sizable as this. Um, and as sophisticated, as Philippa commented, um, as, as running out a shared care record, given um, it involves local authorities, um, our uh, primary care community, our acute trusts, mental health. We went with a product that um, does support those and manages to um, help uh, enable access and sharing of that information and using uh, of course, the standards based approach, which is really important again, isn't it? We talk about standards such as Fire and GS1, SNOMED, coding, all of those things are really important in making sure we um, build uh, a record that is useful, fit for purpose, uh, and can really support our clinicians and practitioners in delivering the care they need to, and of course, driving out the many benefits um, such as that Patients and citizens avoiding giving out their information multiple times and, of course, um, saving further, hopefully, um, travel and transport time, just to name a a few off the bat. So uh, it's an exciting time for us and I I think I feel very spirited by um, this programme that we have.
0: Thank you, Andy. Ross, what are your thoughts?
4: Yeah, it's something I spend quite a lot of time on, actually. Um, and, and probably have done throughout. So, my previous role to, to the one I'm I'm in now was one similar to Stephen's, but in London. So I was CIO for London Ambulance Service for a few years, and therefore Stephen's description of the importance of it I fully endorse. And as the One London programme became more widespread across London, and we were also able to access things like end-of-life care plans. It was it made a, a material difference to the quality of care that our patients received in that end of life period where an ambulance crew would have access to information that, for example, may say the patient didn't wish to go to A&E and blue lights. They wished to stay at home or to go to a hospice or have some other personal care and actually a really kind of important part of their their last few days, potentially for them and also for those around them. So. Uh, Stephen's examples of why it's important are absolutely critical and and there are a whole host of different use cases in that setting that can make a difference. Um, I also look at an email I received yesterday, I've just pulled out as we're talking about it, where we've got GPs within uh, the area at the moment that only have access to blood test results from some of the hospitals that their patients get treated at and actually there are medicines risk around that, because if they're unable to see the blood test results, then they're potentially making prescriptions without having a full understanding of a patient's situation. And again, through through lack of joined up systems, there is absolute clinical risk happening every day up and down the country. And, and these are two small but real world examples of where there are uh, we're not delivering the best quality of care that we should be, because we've not sorted out shared care records. Um, I think that there's a number of areas, if I look at what One London have achieved, uh, Brilliant, I think probably made a bit easier because a lot of the core systems were very similar from one or two core suppliers that actually were relatively able to work together. Uh, Some of those same suppliers working with other products actually is really, really difficult. So you've got some foundational technology differences from companies who may or may not be that interested in sorting it out because actually they just want you to buy all of their product. Standards are important, but we don't have enough of them and they're not clear enough in how to be implemented. So I can have two suppliers around the same table both claiming that they comply with the same standard, but the things don't work together. We need to crack that if we're going to solve the problem. We need to make sure it's not an answer of let's just put the same EPR everywhere. Because that's quite naive when it comes to cross-border work. Stephen has a great example, works across lots of places, and actually me sitting right now in South and I'm sure my nearest ED isn't another ICS. Uh, so if they were to go and converge as an ICS and something different to my ICS, we still have that same cross-border set of challenges. That again, we don't have standards to resolve. So there's a whole host of things in there. Social care is critical as well. We've mentioned that already. Um, local care homes, other types of domiciliary care, um, the ability to support discharge planning through better visibility across an entire ICS or place in terms of bed capacity, uh, the type of support that people might need. There's all sorts of use cases out there that we need to knuckle down and get on with resolving. Um, And I think it's going to require system leadership and that's part of what I'm looking forward to working on over the next few months is trying to do some of that work. It's going to require more standards nationally because we can't define the standards locally that's got to be worked with the likes of the Professional Records and Standards Board to get those things to the right quality. Um, And I think stronger procurement that enforces contractually the compliance with these standards and I've seen too many cases of Trusts making procurement decisions outside of some of the national procurement guidelines, which then means that we've got another decade of a non-compliant supplier that frankly we've just got to work around because once the contract is signed, the contract signed. So there's a range of things that we've collectively as a professional leadership community in this digital space got to support our commercial, clinical and operational colleagues in making the right decisions to unlock all of that and really address the issues that are fundamental and exist today. So that's, that's a great question. And I look forward to all of us working on fixing it.
0: Thank you, Ross. Has anyone got anything to add before we move on to the next question? Yeah, go on, Andy.
1: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with um, Ross's comments. Then uh, it, it it is really important that um, communities are engaged in what they're doing and it requires different skills and different knowledge backgrounds to help choose the right solutions to do that and I, I think sometimes there are strong preferences that come through but they don't necessarily have the context for the decision making of why something's important so you have to um, provide that education and context to doing why you're doing what you're doing and making the decisions while you're while you're making those decisions and take people on that journey uh, with you. I think is really important. But it it does I, I think procurement and having the right people engaged in that process and ensuring those standards do exist and driving those standards are helpful. But also the importance of actually having the competition there in the first instance because we know competition helps drive innovation and you, you, you want a really vibrant market which you can go to uh, and, and I think that's really important in really getting good products into, into the marketplace that, um, can, can, that can take um, uh, place and have the opportunity to shine uh, within ICSs and systems and drive up and continually drive up um, standards and innovation um, so no, I absolutely agree. I think that's a really helpful, uh, helpful discussion.
0: Thank you. Um, so, Philippa, your question in terms of funding for digital in the NHS, should we push for an annual 5% of turnover per organisation and away from centralised parts of funding which have to be bid for?
3: Yep. There we go. I heard one of you say it earlier. It has been, I've never seen anything like what's just happened. And when I did the digital strategy one of the GDE sites at Luton and I went on lots of trips to some amazing places And what I understood from everyone I went to was there was five to eight percent of turnover because their organizations realized that digital, this was before COVID, was driving improvement. It was driving better outcomes, safety, security, yada, yada. And I also was lucky enough to have a Ned who was from the finance um, world. They spent 15 percent of their income and they expected to income but the nhs we have the capital versus revenue considerations which are different in every trust i work in so there's no standardized rule it's locally agreed and to have to fill in bids for things to get money for things you may not want but you have to spend it going back to the procurement to the strategy to linking things up to the ics this has got to stop, surely. It's just not sensible. And why is it I mean, I know estates and I, I can I've done estates as well, and the way I look at it is that digital is a lot more complex and there's a lot more connectivity and interoperability. And now we understand digital's important. COVID helped us raise that. Should we not just stop this madness? Because I I just don't see the benefit now. This year has been crazy and I want everything to be interoperable and interconnected and have the leveling up. So all of our sites can be used by everybody else because that's what the future looks like us all working together. But that is not the way to achieve that. So I'd be interested in your comments, colleagues. I just thought I'd ask a provocative question. Thank you. Thank you, Philippa. Uh,
0: Stephen, if we go over to you.
2: Yeah, Philippa, I think you've uh, you must be listening to our board meetings because that's the uh, the push that we have continuously and I'll be pushing against the, the guidance which says we should be spending a minimum of five percent on on digital uh, I get the challenge, well we can't afford it. I always react to say, well we can afford not to do it because unless we invest in our technology, we can't transform the way that we can give patient care. I, I, I'm a real advocate. Of what you suggested is that it's top sliced. So 5% of what we get from commissioning revenues, if we are commissioned or organisations are commissioned, would be um, would be allocated to digital and that is ring fence and it's it's linked. Uh, and for me, we sh- we could then make the make a plan to deliver. We wouldn't need to do, as you say, and we've done. We've all no doubt filled in the templates with a day to go or a week to go. And then you get half a morning to spend the money, which our procurement colleagues say we can't do this. So I'm with you. Let's grant it out in against phase plans at the beginning of the financial year. And maybe we have to justify what we spent our money on to our Masters in NHSX and uh, E&I, just to show that we're not spending it. Just because we can, I think we really need to be outcome-based with our, our budgets going forward.
0: Thank you, Stephen. Andy, I,
1: I think it's a really um, interesting conversation, isn't it? The the uh, the, the funding dilemma, and um, I, I know um, we each, no doubt, have these discussions at local and system level, regional level, and national level, and. Um, I know there's um, some helpful guidance on who pays for what that's come out and I, 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 I kind of akin to um, the thinking of good plans, having a strategy which is sustainable and costed accordingly. Um, I do come around to that way of thinking that that has got to be the best approach because it's got to be responsible and sustainable. And sometimes I think um, there could be a way of using the existing funding in a better way, which would probably make um, good sense of of how we utilise that. And and I, I think sometimes in my mind, I think about the things that, in that context of, you know, the vendor market and we're all buying from a certain, vendor therefore, you know, the things best done once should be bought bought perhaps a certain level. Uh, there might be something we buy nationally, therefore, there might be something that we need to buy regionally. And there there, there may be some local nuances which organizations want to buy in. And and I, I think that 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 could could help with that. I think where um some challenges can occur for organizations when you do do the uh, rush for the money, but the consequence or the unintended consequence of that can actually be um, really unhelpful um, and you, you know, provides a, an unstable and an unsustainable platform. You've got the money, yes, but actually in a year or year and a half, how are you going to do that? Has it inc- has it incurred cost unless you're really reaping um, the benefits from that, I think can be quite challenging and I think it's being mindful of that. And I think the last point um, I'd probably make as well is what seems to have happened probably um, in all of our time is seen a shift in in terms of from capital to revenue uh, uh, as as we kind of buy um, things like services or cloud services whereby you may have software as a service um, whereby you need an ongoing uh, allocation for that, and therefore, how do you become reliant on that if that isn't already built into your 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 strategic plans? So, so I, I think I think we've we we have we've all learned uh, on this financial journey some things which really don't work and and, and uh, which can be challenging. What what we do know is that we are using probably more technology than we ever have and. Uh, that does require investment. But I I think how that's done is there's better ways to do it. There's better ways of using existing investment and there's better ways which don't have the gotchas. And I think we need to be aware of those. And if we use that in in the right way, I think we could probably stretch the money further in terms of how we're doing that. But um, uh, I, I think having a strategic approach and at least a minimum of three Three years of planned funding with, um, uh, with, with, with you know your your, your business case and uh, and uh, trajectory, which supports that, I
4: think is really important. Though.
0: Thanks, Andy. Russ, what are your thoughts?
4: Yeah, I I love this question. It's some it's a number that I've used in the past five to seven percent, not eight, but I like eight. I'll use eight as well, um, because. You know, the number of trusts I've worked with where, in reality, the number is somewhere between one and a half and two percent. And annually, that compounds up in terms of how far behind you get, because there's every year there's more stuff that hasn't been sorted. The team are further behind. They've not been well enough trained. There are gaps in the team that you have to leave open in order to achieve a, a cost improvement plan or set target. And it's it's not a great place to be, really, is it? Um and I think, I, I do wonder, uh, there's a bit of a theory I've got that I, I think there's a bit of a two-tier NHS out there. I think there's a number of trusts possibly that became foundation trusts, although they're not a completely matched group. That probably over the last decade, I've had a bit more money to afford in digitisation and get further and further ahead year on year. And then the trusts that haven't been in that position, for whatever reason, and there's lots of different reasons for it, have got further and further behind year on year. So that I think makes there a real difference in that levelling up agenda that is now part of the the narrative and I think is really crucial we stick to is the GDE programme helped those that were further ahead or even further ahead of the pack which was great in terms of demonstrating the art of the possible but did nothing for those organisations who were unable to apply for and get on that programme because they didn't fit, fit the rules. And then for the, do they sometimes lack the skills to even know where to start on those journeys? Because actually the team have been so underinvested for years, they don't know what to do. So I guess flipping that a different way, what are the different levers we've got? Well, one is how do we unpick the capital versus revenue conversation? We often come across things that, and I'll use numbers illustratively, we've got a £5 million project that we're going to fund through capital and we'll depreciate over five years. Well, that's costing you a £1 million a year plus PDC charges. So actually, can I have a £1 million a year revenue, please? Because that's a much more useful tool to manage what it is. And often the conversation is no. And we need to reset that financial conversation because it's the same amount of money being managed through the trust books year on year with those depreciation charges. And actually, if we flip it to revenue, it supports us operating within the dividend or sorry, the capital limits the capital resource limits that we have as trusts so i think there's an opportunity to do different things with finance to support that and picking up on the kind of, real benefits of digital do we as a community need to be working harder at better business cases because if these benefits exist do and we put them in the business case and we've got the support from our colleagues across the organizations and systems then it will become easier as a set of decisions to, to allocate that funding. And if we then fail to deliver, then I don't think we should expect to continue getting the money, fair enough. But if we do build that credibility for continuing to deliver in a sustainable way, then I think that's, that's a different story. And right now, each ICS is being asked to develop its three year cost of digital plan. It's not going to be an easy job. Um, but if we get it right, it allows us to start having those conversations about what that investment profile looks like and how we can level up, deliver that long long term funding and use the resources already within the system to change the models of care and improve how we digitise. So that's where I'm optimistic about where we can get to, um, but it's going to be a lot of hard work and, uh, and, we'll see, and we'll see where we are this time next year.
0: Thank you, Ross. Has anyone got anything to add before we go on to the final question? No, cool. Uh, So Ross, your question, how do you see the establishment of ICS's influencing digital transformation?
4: Yeah, I'm really selfish, I start a job running on ICS tomorrow, so uh, (laughs) we'd really welcome a discussion around it. I think as I step into the role, I am thinking about there's some really strong bits of our ICS, there's some great providers, we've got great places, we've got some fabulous local authority engagement, but we're quite New as an ICS, we've compared to London where the STPs worked relatively well together. Um, uh, Where I am, it's it's kind of a bit of a starting from a blank sheet of paper. So great opportunity, but what's it really going to mean? How is it genuinely going to influence the way we deliver patient care uh, and support our colleagues and all the different roles they've got to have a better quality of their professional life and do a better job?
0: Thanks, Ross. Andy, we'll go over to you first.
4: Thanks for that. And another uh,
1: great question. Um, thank you, Ross. And I, I, I think um, what strikes me is we, we've established in um, Cambridgeshire and Peterborough a uh, digital enabling group, and it's made up of those constituent parties of uh, of the system. And what, what strikes me is the, the rich and value that uh, rich, Valuable insight everybody brings around that table to help a um, uh, collective decision making um, about what what approach we take, and um, I think we've we 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 we've established that to make sure that we are consistent in our approach and that we don't leave anyone behind in those decisions. And I think it's great that we've got local authority uh, at that table, and um, I, I I really. Um, value their their insight so, as I do the uh, other organisations in primary care, community, mental health uh, and our, our, our acute colleagues. But um, it does really add a dimension and makes you think differently about actually the services you provide. Um, and of course, as we move into um, uh, uh, place-based um, care and as we talk about those um, uh the need to to consider what that means for us. I think it it's it becomes even more important that you've got those as allies around the table. And um I, I think you know that that helps form the governance of your decision making and making sure that it's it it's aligned with the objectives of the ICS and the organization. But um yeah I, I think one of the things that perhaps we 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 do need to consider more is how we consider talking in the context, as well as a local authority, because from a health basis, there always becomes, uh, or or usually there's a strong sense of this conversation being perhaps dominated by health, and I think it 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 it, it can um, I, I think alter the dynamic. So I think leaders, you really do need to work hard at making sure it's kind of inclusive and that everybody's thoughts are thoughts are pulled into there, and you, you know to that extent having public citizen patient opinion in those groups really help we talked about um we touched on information governance earlier didn't we in the need for uh, for public trust and how how important is that um so certainly within our communications campaigns and as as we train staff their awareness of uh, the different constituent uh, organisations um, that will be using things like shared care records for example. So so I, I do. I think it's really important to work hard at that stakeholder engagement and getting the right stakeholders into your groups which are talking about digital transformation. You can't do it without them uh, and you really need your practitioner, clinical leads in there I think who are helping and can help drive that transformation, have those peer to peer conversations. And um, I, I, I think that that, that, that is really um, key to um, successful um, digital transformation. And I think one of the things that, of course, perhaps we've all, all noticed is, you know, the, the way the pandemic has impacted that right? and trying to get things sometimes started with with potentially s- staff being sick. Is you can't always get the engagement. And of course, that's key to be able to move and drive transformation projects. As sometimes I think you have to check your priorities and which projects can move forward if one's affected by another set of circumstances, which you you can't drive that. Um, and um, yeah, I, I I think that that's really key. You've got to have the engagement to start. You've got to have them around that table, and you. Regularly reviewing, in fact, the stakeholders because that stakeholder landscape, of course, changes, doesn't it? Um, so uh, making sure they're on the table, engaged. So um, very keen that that happens. Very keen that kind of you can work, take workshops out to your front lines so you can get um, uh, the kind of mood music from the floor uh, on opinion, on direction, of course, and on something we talked about earlier, which is context. There's always a reason why you are where you are. Uh, And I I think that's always important decision because I think that's sometimes a nuance that gets lost. Why can't we just do that a minute? Well, hang on. Let's talk about the the context of of this uh, programme and where we are. But um, really helpful
2: conversation. I hope that helps.
0: Thank you, Andy. Uh, Steve, if we go over to you.
2: Yeah, uh, Ross, I think uh, we've got an exciting uh, challenge. I live in Buckinghamshire as well so uh, I'll be looking out for uh, all those good things that you are going to deliver our citizens. But I think one of the things that I see and I work with six ICSs today uh, in my current role. I think one of the things that really important is about the citizen, so let's not just think about them as patients. They are citizens and, you know, and they're citizen services because the local authority colleagues are really important to what what we do. But the opportunity is to think of citizens and population health. For me, the population health agenda is something that, when I speak to my ICS colleagues, for me that's one of the key things about, how do we enable the digitalization to support working the most vulnerable patients, um, and using the technology that exists around, amalgamating what we understand about a and how we can deliver care, In a unique manner. So for me, I would really say the opportunity is to be able to extract data from various elements within the system, uh, bridge it together. And use it to. Work out from a digital perspective what we need to do, bring our clinical colleagues in, of course, who are going to be delivering those care messages, but not forgetting the social workers uh, that are there. And looking on and looking for those vulnerable patients and those vulnerable citizens to uh to for, for all we want to do is to actually deliver the best outcome that we can with the uh the limited funds that we've got uh, so for me that would be a, it's a, such a fantastic opportunity that you've got and uh, i really think you're uh, in the right place at the right time thank
3: you Stephen. philippa yeah, I agree with that. It's been some really good comments. I think we've said earlier, it's about the vision. What is the vision? Is it just to, to have a portal or is it going to be to be more widely used? Are you going to be doing um, kind of predictions of different health conditions? Are you going to do prevention? Are you going to improve, as you've said, Stephen, population health and the citizen Working in a mental health institution now with community and all the other services that we have coming from an acute, the things we've said, people participation, absolutely critical, co-production, this is about us all having one vision, having the vision and everybody understanding it, and then I think I think for me, it, the most important bit is the transformation. We have to be in the room together with the clinical teams, with the operational teams, have the same vision, just like you did with like running our EPMA. We had the pharmacy team who were the experts in what it did. You had the nurses who used it. You had all the people in the room. We mapped it out. And then digital wrapped around and said, right, is it 24-7? Is it resilient? What does it have to connect to? Yardy, yardy, you pick the system. And I think the ICS has the most brilliant opportunity to do that on such a big scale. But If I just put a human element to it, my passion to come here was because I cared for my 102-year-old grandmother myself for five years. And she didn't go into an acute trust until her very last moment and then she came back out to finish her days the way she wanted i then had to build all my own connectivity and and do all of that she had i would call a good end And I would wish that for everybody and we can do that now. It's not a this is the care pathway ends at this door and we don't care about what happens next. We're an ICS, we care about all of it. So my message is you've got a massive opportunity. Be bold, be brave, be inclusive, be of the moment, predict the outcome, intervene and prevent. That's what I think and I say good luck to you but I think now is the time to get it right or it could just be another transformation that changes nothing apart from the title on the door and we could live without any more of those. We've had MPFIT, we've had all that good stuff. Let's really make a difference. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much Philippa. Has
3: anyone got anything else to add? I'll
4: I'll just uh, just respond to those comments. I think it's really uh inspiring actually hearing all those different comments and it certainly helps me uh close tonight with a smile as i start thinking about the challenges ahead then philip give me a pillow give me a bit of red i'd still better get it right and not create another np fit out of it but i'm um, uh i think that's absolutely right if this is just another reshuffle and we've all seen them far too many times then it's a bit pointless um but really that that citizen role I think is really crucial. I'm really conscious when I've been working in the last 10 months with colleagues from Buckinghamshire Council that I don't use the right language all the time because they're not thinking of patients. They're thinking of our sometimes our citizens or our residents, depending on, on who I'm speaking with. And there's a whole different language that as we develop ICSs to be really effective, we need to be inclusive across all our colleagues to be inclusive about the needs of everyone that we're here to support. Um, And I think there's some great messages in there. So yeah, thank you everybody, really helpful.